Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. We are Black and Gold Banneret, SB Nation's home for UCF Sports. And oh my gosh, it's a bye week and we still have a show. Welcome aboard. My name is Jeff Sharon and I am alongside Brian Murphy and Eric Lopez as usual. Gentlemen, how are things going? Uh fine unless you're a baseball fan in which things are not going well yeah it's not going well it's a bit it's a rough it's a rough night for game fives i'll tell you that <laughs> yes uh We're recording yeah. on wednesday night for those that don't know so that's what Murph yeah. is alluding to the game fives although breaking news the cardinals did stop scoring against the Braves. So. yeah <laughs> murph murph laments the lack of quality baseball on this evening but i'm sure you don't lament the lack of quality podcasting that is going on because we are giving you quality podcasting here on Black and Gold Banneret. You can follow us at UCF underscore Banneret, Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret, and of course Black and Gold Banneret.com. Uh, we have a we actually have two very special guests uh, today in a very uh, special segment. I put on my uh, my Chuck Todd slash Chris Wallace slash uh, George Stephanopoulos hat and uh, talk to Representative Chris Lamarca of Florida's 93rd District and uh, sports uh, sports lawyer, uh, agent, expert, and a very fine writer indeed, uh, Darren Heitner. I uh, had them on uh, earlier this week to talk about the uh, college at or the college student athlete name and likeness bill that's getting ready to move through the Florida State Legislature. Uh, they were the two guys that wrote it. And special thanks to Chaz Short, uh, CFB asterisk on Twitter, whom I know all of you guys on Twitter know and love. Um, he actually helped uh, set up the interview. And then Chaz and I uh, speak briefly after that, sort of debriefing um, the interview. Uh, really interesting stuff if you're kind of into you know, where college sports might be going from a business slash law perspective. And... Uh, and I, I, it was really uh, an interesting interview, and I've been a follower of Darren Heitner for a long time, so um, it was good to get his perspective on it. But nonetheless, let's talk about things that are happening right now in football, which is not not anything at all. It's the bye week, thank goodness. Uh, not a moment too soon uh, with uh, UCF um, losing last week uh, uh, against uh, Cincinnati on Friday. And, uh, well, I mean, let's just kind of put a bow on this as quickly as we can, gentlemen. It was, uh, you know, everyone's going to talk about the, uh, the you know, blaming uh, Josh Heupel for bad play calling, blaming, uh, blame, 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 blame all over the place. Um, I know what Eric's going to say. How about giving Cincinnati some credit? Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. Yes, we're going to give Cincinnati credit. They played a great game. And this is a game that I was scared of. Um at the start of the season, I thought UCF would lose this game in my preseason predictions. Turns out I was right. I'm not proud about that. But uh, but let me ask you this, uh, and Murph, I'll start with you. You know, is 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 all lost? <laughs> Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, or just what what in the world happened from your perspective on Friday night? Uh. What happened is their offensive line did not have a good game. It really didn't on both on really either end of the line. Uh, did not play well. Uh, the turnovers were killers. They had two turnovers deep in the in, in the red zone, which you just can't do. Period. Um, I thought the defense played well, but you know everybody's everybody's gonna point to that one run by Michael Warren in the third quarter that really changed the the game around. 
Um, but really, the, the game boils down to lack of offensive line play and turnovers. And um, and it, look, if you're going to lose the turnover battle four to one, uh, find me uh, the historical record of teams who lose the turnover battle four to one, and what's their win loss? Like it's it ain't great. So yeah, that's how it goes. Eric, you you watch what you watch what we all watched, but. Uh, it's, you know, again, like I said, let's give credit where credit's due to Cincinnati. They made the plays when they had to, but man, what, what went wrong in this game? Well, I think Brian nailed every point and I would add red zone uh, offense versus defense Cincinnati. I think Cincinnati was committed to giving up yards, short yardage. They didn't want to get beat over the top and they stiffened up when they played defensively. I think they gave them some different looks, especially up front. I don't think UCF saw some of these looks. I thought they were physical with the receivers, especially in the red zone. And let me give you some stats here. And, Brian, I want you to try reaction to this. Uh, so I kind of did some stuff here afterwards. This is UCF's offense this year in the red zone. Red zone where they have scored touchdowns going into the red zone. They have scored this year just 55% of the time they've been in the red zone. They've scored a touchdown. Compare that to last year where it was 80% of the time they were in the red zone. They scored a touchdown. 2017, they scored 70% of the time a touchdown when they were in the red zone. I'll go even further. In it, just getting a red zone score, anytime you're in the red zone, you get a touchdown or a field goal. This year, they're at 76%. Sounds good. Last year, they were at 90%. And the 2017, 85%, Murph, they're leaving points. Uh, they're leaving points going to the red zone. They're not executing on that red zone. And as a result, instead of maybe being up 7, 10, 14 points in games, you're trailing and you're, you're, you're leaving points on the field, Murph. What's the cause of that? Uh, well, the two, two of the causes of that were the turnovers. One, in the first quarter where Dylan Gabriel throws a little out to Gabe Davis, Gabe slashes a little slant. Gabe slips on the route, unfortunately, allows the corner to jump it. And then uh, the other one, which was the one where I think they were down – I think they were down 27-16 at this point. They were driving for a score, and uh, the little pop pass by Dylan Gabriel over the middle to Jake Hescock, it's a little too far out in front of Hescock. He tips it with his right hand. It goes up off his hand and gets picked off at, like, the five-yard line. These are two turnovers inside the five. Like, those are killers. Yeah. Also, though, I just think that in short fields, uh, in short, tight spaces, this offense has a tendency to get, get, to get bogged down when two things happen. One, they really can't run the ball up the middle. Like, they really have had hard times doing that, both against Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. Really difficult running between the tackles. And then they rely so much on slants and screens with their wide receivers in, the, in those areas. But if you can't get a block by your wide receiver out there on the wide when they're running screens, or if your slant is a little off, like, those plays aren't going to work. Um you know, and another thing I'll bring up, Eric, you mentioned a lot of stats. First of all, the 76% success rate is not good. It's tied for 100th in the nation out of 130 teams. They've also kicked as many field goals in the red zone already this year as they did of all of last season. Uh, again, these are uh, they scoring, but they're leaving better and bigger opportunities out there. I think it comes down to the fact that they can't run efficiently. The turnovers hurt, and they're past plays those little short pass plays that they used to thrive on 
are just not clicking right now. Not to mention the fact that it, uh, you know, as I pointed out during the game, it seems like when they get inside the 20, the, the go, go, go in between plays, for some reason, they just stop and and take up yeah. more time. They, they don't keep the defense on their heels when they get down deep, which is just curious to me. You, that's when you'd want to keep the defense on their heels, right? I feel like I feel like they still run at good pace at all times, and people complain about that. Like, well, again, in the aftermath of this, people complain about everything. <laughs> but people did complain about like, why aren't they? Why, you know, why why don't they keep it up, or why don't they slow down? Why don't they slow down because they're they're why are they running so quickly? Like that's what that's what they do. Like they they I I heard that a lot about like you know they're running too fast. Like that's kind of what they are. Like this is what they do. Like I, I'm sorry if you don't like the fact that. If the th- if the drive is not successful, that the drive is over. Um, also, I, I talked about this during the game. You know, they are. We know for the last few years that they love to spread the field out uh, horizontally. Like they push their wideouts to the far reaches of yeah. the sidelines. They li- quite and, literally spread the field. Oh, they they are spread. They are they are the spreadiest spread who they never spreaded. So <laughs> when when they when they do that though. And sometimes Dylan can be a little late with his reads on that, or if the throw is just taking a while to get out there, it really telegraphs those throws because the because the, they're so because the the, the the target is so far away from Dylan Gabriel that ball has traveled a good distance. By the time it gets there, there's already a safety or a linebacker headed that way, and if the receiver next to that guy can't get a block, it's not going to go anywhere. And I think we saw that quite a bit in that Cincinnati game where. They tried those wide receiver screens. Teams were ready for it, read it really quickly, had enough time to get over to the sideline because it takes a while for the the pass to actually get there. And then either the inside receiver or the outside receiver, who's who's beside the target, if he can't get a block, that thing is going nowhere. Yeah. Well, it's it's a it's a two. Thank God for the bye week at this point with UCF at four and two because it couldn't come like you said in what you wrote on the story uh, on the site. Couldn't come any any sooner. Uh, as far as UCF they is concerned, it. they really needed it to sort of get get a grip on the season, at least at this point. Of course, we'll, we'll we won't be able to tell whether or not they actually have until they get back out there. But um, you were at uh, media availability today, Murph. What was the general sense from everyone that you talked to about what they really need to fix, what UCF really wants to fix, and get working again moving forward? I, you know, the things that Heidel keeps bringing up, and he brought it up both in his teleconference on Monday, the conference teleconference on Monday, and then on uh, on today, when we met with him on uh, today, Wednesday, is the, the, the red zone efficiency and the turnovers, things we just talked about. Yeah. And, again, how do you stop turnovers? Like, well, you got to be smarter. Like, you know, guys, how weird was it to see Dylan Gabriel? And I do put this on him because he's got the ball in his hands. Dylan Gabriel get a mix-up with the running back at the mesh point of a read option handoff twice. Yeah. They dropped twice on read option handoffs. Like, this is simple, basic stuff. Like, this is, like, day one installation. Like, uh, this is, you know, and, and so it was just so weird. And he's just got to do a better job of taking care of the football. Like, the the, the the first interception was not his fault. Gabe slipped on the route. The, the, the other ones definitely were his fault. He stared down Gabe Davis. And the corner read it easily, jumped in front for a pick six. And the other one was a throw over the middle that was too far, a little too far. And he lobbed it in the air and it got picked off. Um, it, again, it just, it was, you got to be smarter. You got to be just 
more on point with certain things. And I will say this. You guys talked about it a little bit. Eric, you mentioned it, how Cincinnati threw things at them they had never seen. That is absolutely correct. Now, after the game, Josh Heibel did say that Cincinnati was, uh, quote-unquote, structurally a little structurally different than they had seen on film. However, uh, Adrian Killen said today that they threw some things out there that they had never seen on tape. A lot of what they threw out they had never seen it was their first look at it. So there you go. Hmm, interesting. I'm glad you brought up Adrian Killings, Murph, because I have a question for you about Adrian oh, Killings. And that is, and that is, where is he in this offense? Let me give you some stats, Murph, because uh, you and I were thinking the same thing. Because I know you uh, I, I asked Joshua. So Adrian Killings. All right, let me read you, give you some stats here, then you can respond. In 2017, this is receptions and carries, averaged 11 touches a game. That's receptions and carries. I'm not including special teams. He averaged 11 touches for 75 yards in 2017. In 2018, he averaged 12 touches last year, 12.7 for 86 total yards. This year, he's down to eight and a half touches for 56 yards a, a game. And in the Cincinnati game, he had two touches for 19 yards. And in, in the UCF's three losses, by the way, he's averaged five touches for 36 yards. Murph, where is he? I don't know. I will give you, and again, Eric, you and me are on the same wavelength here. That's why I asked Josh about it on the teleconference, about why or what he can do to get Adrian Killens and Otis Anderson, because he deserves to be in this conversation too. They, yeah. they I got Anderson not, stats too for you. I got Anderson stats for you. In fact, I'll read them right quick here, and then you can continue. In 2017, Otis Anderson averaged 7.6 touches for 65 yards. Again, receptions and rushing yard carries. Last year, remember, that was the big – we talked about it a lot last year. He wasn't as involved. He only averaged five touches for 39 yards. This year, that's gone back up. Uh, he's averaging about eight and a half touches for about 70, uh, 75 yards. But he had seven touches for 45 yards in the Cincinnati loss. And in the three losses, Otis has averaged six and a half touches for only 41 yards. So basically, they're only getting 77 yards – from Otis and Killings in the in their three losses, where they usually give you about a buck twenty to a buck thirty, uh, you know, a buck twenty to a buck forty, give and take, uh, Murph. Yeah, and it seems like something so easy to fix because don't you want to have these guys out wide in space in the slot in open areas? Uh, you know, Josh, his answer on Monday when I asked about it was, well, a lot of their running plays sometimes are designed to get them in open spaces, which I, I will admit. When you look at AK run, that is sometimes correct. They do put him uh, on off tackle stuff and around the end stuff, but I, I still it, it doesn't it, it doesn't make much sense to me why they can't utilize these guys more as wide receivers. Like this is all they've talked about with Otis Anderson the last couple of years is making him more of a wide receiver. We know Adrian Killens has become a better wide receiver the last two years, and yet those guys are on average to catch are on are, are on pace. To catch a total of 30 passes, which is just it's, – it's unfathomable. Yeah. My only rebuttal to myself on this is that they're leaving those backs in there to block yeah. for extra protection. Teams have been yeah. blitzing more. Teams have been blitzing more, Murphy, because I watched the Cincinnati game again, and even I went back to Pittsburgh. Teams are blitzing more, and I think that's part of the adjustments that teams have made to UCF, Murph, is they're blitzing more, especially against the freshman like Gabriel, and they're trying to take out killings in 
particular out of the game, and even Anderson when he's lined up, by making them pass protectors. So I do think that's part of it, yes. Yeah. But my, 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 my thing with that is, yes, I, I watched the game too, and Cincinnati sent four, only four and five guys quite a lot and still got home. Like they got, they got home with five guys, four and five pretty often. So it wasn't like they were sending the house. Again, that's on the offensive line. But secondly, if you're depending on Adrian Killens to be your third down blocker, I don't think that's a great usage for a guy who's five foot eight, one sixty. Um, so again, I just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I think they are completely underutilized offensively. When we see that most of their offensive passing game is deep shots down the field and wide receiver screens. By the way, Otis Anderson caught I think three passes on four targets for this in this game. All of it came on the first drive. All of it came on the first drive. He was invisible after that. Why? Why? So it's, again, yeah. I, I think I'm I am parroting a lot of what UCF fans are saying, but this seems like simple stuff. If you want to unlock your efficiency in the red zone, you've got to be more diversified. You can't just depend on Gabe Davis and Trey Nixon to be your only receivers, which has really been the case in these two losses. Yeah. Marlon Williams isn't witness protection at this point. Like it doesn't make sense. By it's, the way, it's curious. Killings hasn't caught a ball. Killings hasn't caught a ball since Stanford, Murph and Jeff, when he caught four balls in that game. He has five receptions this year. He caught that 74-yarder, Murph and Boca, against FAU, caught four balls against Stanford, hasn't caught a ball since. And that and that FAU touchdown was a completely, blow, a completely blown coverage. So, I mean, right. even that was like they didn't even defend him. I, I just I don't understand the usage, and I'm not going to be critical on every part that people want to be critical on. But for me, if, if, we're, if we're, we're talking about how this offense can be better, we can talk about efficiency and turnovers, all that stuff. Well, kind of two ways you can deal with that is by one using more guys in your disposal because you've got athletes to do that, and and then just making the defense have to cover more, have to have to be aware of more players not being so locked in on two or three you know of the same receivers they'd be more diversified and they just they haven't done that in these losses and it's it's it's, it's dismaying and you hope that changes going forward not only in the ECU game but in games against better competition with good defenses like Temple and Tulane hey you know I yeah. gotta give credit uh, by, 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 yeah go ahead Eric. by the way one point two they make they they make guys miss, and they give you easy first downs. I'm going to give you another last stat I have for you because I've been—I mean, I've been doing this since they lost Friday night. I've been obsessed with <laughs> issues with what's going on here. Third down conversions this year, UCF's converting third downs at 38 percent. Last mm -hmm. year, they were at 50 percent. Last year, 2017, I go back because obviously we all know the magical year 2017, 45 percent. You brought this up earlier, Matt uh, Murph. You know they're not on the they're 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 not staying on the field as frequently. They're not converting as many third downs. Killings and Anderson aren't getting the opportunities to get you some cheap first downs when they can make a guy miss and things like that. I think it all adds up to some of the issues they've had with the offense. Um, I think it's not necessarily play calling necessarily or the quarterback or this or that, but I think it's a combination of things. And I think we've kind of dissected a few here. And those yeah. penalties. And by the way, I'm sorry, Jeff. We can just kick you off the podcast and <laughs> you out here like. Uh, and a lot of that, though, in, in, this is something different. It comes from the penalties. There were a lot, a lot of that against Cincinnati where they just they had really killer penalties early in drives, first down, 
and that sets you back. And that makes your third downs, you know, not third and twos, but third and sevens, and you're just naturally not going to convert as many of those. Yeah. I wanted to give some credit to um, Anthony Lenahan, who I think brought up something that, that you were alluding to, Murph, is the fact that that the, the key play that kind of lent you to lent you to think, oh, well, you know, UCF could actually do this correctly is um, was that two-point conversion where there was a lot of motion on the play um, and they were able to get, uh, I think, I think it was Killens who caught the uh, the pass on the outside, but um, yeah. uh, but that was pretty much it, and uh, and and that was and we don't see a lot of motion from this team. We don't see a lot of action one way out or the other, and um, and it's it was just it was just a head scratcher. As as frustrating as the pit as the pit loss was because of of how that game ended. This game was completely infuriating uh, it, it, because of it, it seemed like they were doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results, and they weren't getting it. But I don't want to dwell too much on the negative I've here, said, as you guys know. I've said that on the site. I've written on the site how sometimes this offense can look like the definition of insanity. It yeah. really can. But how, uh, real quick, let me let, let me let me play uh, defend here a little bit. How sure. much of this though is on the quarterback? Because isn't he the ultimately the guy that decides who gets the football? Uh, is this just a, a case of a freshman that's not, you know, he's not a junior, he's not a senior, he's not maybe, maybe some in some plays he's just kind of going one read. He's, you know, he's obviously going to Gabe Davis a lot. How much of this is really more of an inexperienced quarterback where you know who the last couple of years could spread the ball around? Daryl Mack? Uh, I, I, I well, agree. Him, him too. Well, him, but the other guy, the other guy. Uh, yes, I understand. I'm, I'm being, I'm being, <laughs> uh, no. I, I think Dylan is just doing, you know. Again, they are they are obviously game planning for him strictly, and I think you can see that on the on the film when watching the game again. Like he's just sort of following. There's no improvisation by him. Like he is doing what they tell him to do to a T. The turnovers that that he's committed, a lot of them are inexcusable. Certainly, in Cincinnati game, I've already talked about it. Like that's on him. But as far as how the play unfolds. Um, I mean, it's just more of like him following what he's told to do. And I think he's being pretty tightly kept under wraps. Like he's, when you look at things and look at how he doesn't really expand the field, he doesn't really read the entire field on a single play, he's got pretty narrow orders. And so he's just sort of following that. You would like to see him have as much touch on those deep throws as he did early in the season, but that didn't happen in Cincinnati. You know, that's, Something that that you like to see get better, but I don't put a lot of this on Dylan Gabriel because I just feel like he's following the game plan, and I think the game plan for him is is not as uh, deep or wide as it would be for Mackenzie Melton. All right. Well, you live by the freshman quarterback, and you die by the true freshman quarterback. But I don't want, like I said earlier. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't want to dwell too much on you know what went wrong. What I want to do is, well, we have time in this first segment. Um, let's give some quick grades to four units so far. Since we're at the halfway point, okay, these are our midterm exams. Um, uh, A through F, um, oh, we're going to go offense, defense, special teams, and coaching staff. Um, and uh, Murph, I'm going to start with you, and we're going to start with the offense. So, uh, Brian, what's your grade? For it, it, just real quick, your grade for the offense and why? Uh, I think it's still like a B plus. And people will be like, "No, it was awful." 
like, look at the stats. It's still one of the best offenses in the game. There's no doubt about it. They have not been as efficient in the red zone as you would like. But otherwise, they're really, really, really good. Eric? Yeah, I'll go with Murph. I won't uh, disagree too much. I mean, they've scored a lot of points. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, that's still pretty good. I think the turnovers in the red zone stuff like we talked about still are going to haunt them. I'm going to give them a solid B. Solid B. I'm a little bit lower than you guys on that because I'm still blown away by the numbers. Defense, Murph, what do you got? Uh, give him an A minus. Thought the pick game was was really bad. Other than that, I think they've been really solid. Stanford game was fantastic. The Cincy game, they were the only reason why that game was close because while the offense couldn't get out of its own breath, that defense was really really stellar. So I'd say they're 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 an A minus. They've really held their own pretty well. Eric, I agree with Murph, and I want to give us uh, A plus to Nate Evans on a heck of a game. Oh, he was great uh, against Cincinnati. Then. And then fantastic leadership after the game in the post game uh, and throughout the week. Well spoken, I think. Uh, really, really great, great, great kid and a great performance by him. So I just want to give him a salute on that. I'm I'm with you on a minus. I think that for the exact reason Murph that you said. You know, if it's that Cincinnati game really was, I thought a, a, a masterpiece by Randy Shannon because they single they almost single handedly kept UCF in it when the offense was completely sputtering. At one point, UCF had minus 21 yards of offense in the second half, um, which seems bizarre to think of. But the defense kept them in it uh, right down to the very end. Um, Coming up, uh, okay, special teams. Uh, Murph, what do you got? Uh, um, Probably, you know, B plus, A minus. I mean, because... Pick one. Dylan Bardis (laughs) has done a... Oh, God, please. <laughs> uh, they haven't had as many big plays in the return game as you would like, but Dylan Barnes has been really solid at replacing Matthew Wright, and I will say they have sort of fi- fixed their issues on kickoffs. Remember, uh, the, the kickoff, they, they could not stop kicking balls out of bounds on kickoffs. That hasn't happened the last few weeks. So, no, I, I think it's been better than expected. Derek? Yeah, I go B. B. I would go B. Same reason, Murph. I, I, I'm agreeing 100%. I'm going to go with a B minus though because they UCF has been struggling on kick coverage this year on both punts and kickoffs. 104th in punt return defense uh, and uh, 78th in kickoff return defense. And of course, the blocked kick in the pit game I thought was really a backbreaker in that game. Uh, so I, I I'm going to go actually probably a probably a C plus um, because uh, yes. They filled the holes that they were worried about filling this year, but in terms of overall on-field performance, I think it's got to be a lot better. Um, last but not least, and I know the fans are going to be think of, of have a lot of fun with this coaching staff. Murph, again, how am I supposed to grade this? Because I I can't see it on the field. Like it, it's only it's their orders carried out by the players. So, I mean, I'll go, and I guess we're, we're grading both offense and defense, correct? Like, it's two different things, right? Yeah, okay. Don't you just average it out, basically? I mean, well, I guess yeah. some decision to you there. I'll go, like, C+. Plus. Like, it, it hasn't, like, I don't think anything that's been done, uh, certainly offensively, has really, like, been like, wow, that was really inventive. Like, that <laughs> hasn't happened offensively. Defensively, they, they've been pretty stellar. They've had some communication issues with with crossing routes still, which happened again in Cincinnati. But, you know, C+. Plus. Okay. Eric? C+, plus better than a C? Yes. Yes. You got C-, C, C+. Plus. It's, a, it's a C, 
but plus. Right. Think of it like <laughs> like it's like a seventy nine, right? You know, not I quite know, here's a B. How I would gra- here, here, here. This is the grading system, right? If you're undefeated, you get an A. If you had one loss, it's a B. You get two. Yeah, it's a right. C. There you go. Okay. Simple as that. All right. Um, coaching the coaching staff, I would give them. Um, at least a, I, I give them a B minus. I, I think that they would have had an A had had this Cincinnati game gone a little bit differently. I really do believe that. Um, you know, in terms of you know how Josh Heupel has run the offense, when it works, it works. When it doesn't, boy, does it not. And uh, uh, Randy Shannon, I think you know has really done a wonderful job. I think that he's really done a fantastic job with his defense in in year number two. I think um, we don't give him enough credit for that. So. There are uh, midseason grades. If you have your own midseason grades, let us know. Black and Gold Banneret dot um, com, Facebook dot com slash Black and Gold Banneret, UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. When we get back, we delve into some bye week content with a little bit of talk around, well, some sports business and sports law, uh, and a very special interview. Uh, coming up with Representative Chip Lamarca and Darren Heitner, the uh, uh, the co-authors of HB two eight seven, which uh, is which stands to be Florida's uh, entry into uh, into what California already did um, in allowing college student athletes to make money off of their name and likeness and retain their eligibility uh, in doing so. Um, Lots to talk about with that, and then we will also break that down with Chaz Short, CFB Asterisk on Twitter, when we return. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Joining me now here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast, two very special guests, very excited to do this. First of all, representing Florida's 93rd House District, which covers northern coastal Broward County, not far from my old neck of the woods. He's a resident of White House Point and the author of HB 287, the Student Athlete Achievement Act in the Florida House, Representative Chuck Lamarca. Representative, how are you today? Doing great. Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on board. And also, Representative Lamarca's co-author of the bill, he is the founder of Heitner Legal, representing numerous athletes whose names you will recognize. He's also a contributor to Forbes and the founder and editor of sports agent blog, Darren Heitner, joining us as well from South Florida. Hey, Darren. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much to you both for coming on to talk about this issue. Uh, and it's uh, it's moving so quickly, and I think that's the thing that's really interesting. But Representative Lamarck, I'll start with you. Give us a quick rundown of what got you on board with this issue and what is contained in this bill. So uh, what got me on board was really just watch, watching an injustice and an equity in the free market for student athletes uh, that, you know, if you have a student athlete on any, any percentage of scholarship versus uh, another student on academic scholarship, uh, they have so many things that are uh, limited they're able to do with regard to, you know, using their name image and likeness, just like, a, you know, an uh, IT student, an uh, engineering student, an inventor, somebody with a great mind can benefit off that. The athlete could not. And it just seems, seems very unfair. And uh, there's plenty of examples uh, of, of athletes that, they don't. There's not a league for them to go to next. So it's not just about football, basketball, or baseball, but uh, all of the other uh, sports, the other 21 NCAA sports. And I think it's uh, it, it's just something that makes no sense if you're a fan of the free market that you basically give up your right to earn anything based on your skill set or 
name, image, and likeness, and you really your brand uh, while you're in school. Well, give us a quick rundown uh, of what is really in this bill. What is it trying to do? Okay, so our, our bill, there's a few things that are different than uh, the other bill that's, uh, that's being put up uh, by the other representative. Um, so our, our bill, number one, the biggest thing is, uh, so we looked at it, obviously we're, we're looking at uh, almost a half million student athletes in the U.S., 460,000 playing over 24 sports, and 11,000 of them are in Florida. And as we looked at, you know, what, what sports are uh, what sports are people getting scholarship in, uh, what sports are they not, what, just what, what are their abilities to, to do anything outside of playing their sport or, uh, you know, it, or going to school and doing something else while they're doing that. And really, your, your uh, UCF kicker, Donald Delahaye, was, was a great example. You know, here he has this YouTube channel that, I can't imagine the, the, the you know, these rules when they were created. I know they've, they've tried to modernize along with the time, but, I mean, he's doing a YouTube channel and happens to talk a little about who he is, which was, at the time, a football player at the University of Central Florida, mm-hmm. and, you know, shut him down for having a, a, a YouTube channel. And it, that was that and some of the other examples just don't make sense to me. I, I know we have students, for example, at um, the uh, FAU lab school down here at, at, in Boca Raton at, FAU Henderson, and, and you know they've created and invented things, or been published in research journals, and they get to keep those proceeds. They get to keep the invention of an antimicrobial uh, bandage from shark skin. I mean, the university is not taking that, but that student's able to take that and also enjoy those freedoms in school. And then you know, just really looking at the the biggest thing, our bill, um, it would go into effect three years before the California bill or uh, the the, comp- the uh, competing bill here in Florida, which would have an effective date of. Ours would be July 1, 2020, and we would be the first state in the Eastern to implement it. And uh, I think it would obviously be the tip of the spear with regard to lawsuits, because I don't think this is going to be something that just, uh, you know, becomes law on the fat. I think the, uh, the folks that have a big stake in this will definitely be going the legal route to try to stop it. Darren, what got you on board with this? I know you've spent a long time working in sports law and, and particularly as an agent. Um, but where, t- give me your perspective on this. Well, I've always fashioned myself to be an advocate for athletes. As you mentioned earlier, I, I do work uh, from a legal perspective with many athletes and many agents. And so I've always been very cognizant of, you know, what they're interested in and where they may not be afforded rights that they should be. And one issue that has always been a concern for me is that, They're certainly not provided the same rights as literally every other American when they are considered college athletes. And specifically, it's those rights that we're looking at in this piece of legislation in Florida. Uh, Your name, image, and like the ability to exploit that for commercial gain. Again, literally every American has the right to make money off of what's construed as publicity rights, except for college athletes. So all we're trying to do is level the playing field. Provide those college athletes the same rights as everybody else. It's a right for many a fact a statute with regard to rights of publicity on the books. And so again, um, you know, I was asked to be involved uh, by Chip Lamarcus staff, specifically Corey, and uh, when I was asked to provide some assistance, I didn't have to think twice about it. I mean, this is a, an issue that's near and dear to me. Uh, I do think that it's a right that, um, from a normative standpoint, it's just something that every college athlete should be able to enjoy. And look, not every college athlete will necessarily 
be able to or want to take advantage of this particular right. The bottom line is it's a right that they should determine on a case-by-case basis whether or not they want to take advantage of it. Um, and we're just as interested in, in providing the right to the athlete who may be able to make substantial money from licensing his or her name, image, or likeness, but also the smaller name athlete who may be able to make a few thousand dollars. That's significant to them when they're in college. Uh, the bill is, well, remarkably readable, uh, especially for uh, a non-lawyer like me. It's six pages long. It seems pretty straightforward. I, we do have a link to it on the site. We'll be able to, um, it will provide it in the description for the podcast. As I was reading through it, um, Darren, there was one question actually that I had in some of the text that, uh, that about a student athlete may not enter into a contract providing represent providing compensation to the student for use of the student's name, image, or likeness if a provision of such contract is in conflict with a provision of the student's team contract. So I see the words student's contract and then team contract kind of getting thrown around. Can you... Uh, can you flesh that out for me a little bit to understand what, what you mean by a team contract, essentially? So we were inter- very interested in making sure that we're not creating situations of exposure for the college athletes. And so by virtue of having this particular provision in there, we're, we're in, hopefully ensuring that there's an open line of communication between the athletic institutions and their college athletes so that the college athletes are well aware of when there may be exclusive relationships between the institutions and third parties, let's say such as um, a shoe and apparel company. We don't want there to be any specific violation of those existing agreements. And so that that's truly the purpose of including that type of language so as not to create some sort of situation where there's unnecessary added exposure for the athletes. Gotcha. Representative LaMarca, back to you. Um, you specifically mentioned Donald De La Haye. Of course, UCF fans remember that he was basically forced to choose between keeping his eligibility to be a college football player and monetizing the videos that he created um, on YouTube. So obviously, uh, if this bill passes and becomes law, that would force somebody in that same position to not have to make that same choice. Is that correct? Correct. You know, I, I look at it, uh, as you just said, I look at it even, even more basically that he was, he, he had to make a decision whether he wanted to get his education or be able to enter the free market. I understand it was because of football scholarship, but ultimately because of this rule, he's not only not able to participate in this football scholarship, but, but he's also, you know, determined, has to determine whether he's going to finish school on his own dime. So, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's a matter of fairness. And you know, going back on, on the question you were speaking with Darren on, you know, the, I think one of the biggest rights, and we've heard uh, from Tim Tebow and some other folks, is, is really their right not to participate in this process. You know, there are a lot of uh, rights we don't take advantage of as, as citizens of the United States, and, you know, whether we buy or not buy stocks or whether we follow sports or not and that type of thing so i mean these are all things we can make that determination as adults and, and citizens and here's a you know here's a situation where kids can uh you know probably take advantage of the best the, the best value of their uh of their skill set i mean the quarterback over at university of south florida a number of years ago i mean he didn't go on to play in the in the nfl but uh you know usf was top ranked in the state for for uh you know a year and, and here's a guy uh, from a from humble beginnings, they can't take advantage of that background. Mm-hmm. 
What about the case of somebody like, say, Ja Reed? Now, I know this bill specifically mentions um, students who are actively in who are actively in uh, in college sports at the time. But Ja Reed, a former UCF player, filed lawsuit um, saying that UCF athletics could not use his image in a promotional poster for a camp, even though it was after he graduated. Uh, what impact would that have going forward for student athletes once they do graduate? Have you guys formulated what would happen next about that? Yeah, so I have to be careful on what I say because I actually had some communications with Ja Reed and I almost represented him in that lawsuit. Okay. So I have to be cautious to not provide any particular attorney-client privilege-related information on that. But but generally, with regard to your question, and not necessarily about Ja Reed in particular – um, what we want to make clear is that by way of the six-page bill that's been offered, there's not an intention to go beyond the reach of what's specifically stated. Mm-hmm. So again, the clear intention is to provide college athletes with the same rights of publicity as everybody else. To the extent that there may be other types of regulations in place by the NCA or schools, I, I don't believe that the government seeks to interfere. Okay. Um, and so, you know, whether there may be causes of action for current or former collegiate athletes, I think is irrespective and, and a separate issue to be discussed uh, apart from what we're trying to accomplish here with this piece of legislation. Okay. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here, guys. So I want to ask you specifically, um, Representative Lamarca. What about this scenario? Uh, One of the things that I've heard is, well, if this passes, this law is only going to help the rich programs get richer, like Florida, Florida State, and Miami, because they already have the resources available to them to amplify their student-athletes' reach in terms of things like jersey sales, etc. This is a UCF podcast, so if you're a UCF fan, how would this help schools like UCF or, say, Representative Lamarca, your own alma mater, Florida Atlantic University? So, so really, uh, I'm not looking at, in, in my, my perspective, I'm not looking at the, the program so much as the athlete. And this is a freedom issue and a free parking issue. If you've got a great, uh, you know, Alfred Morris at, at, at FAU when, they, when he was there, you wanted to play in the NFL, you know, probably wouldn't have had that, that opportunity. Um, you know, everyone's thinking football and everyone's thinking jerseys and, and things like that. I, I am truly thinking, you know, women's softball, some some other sports that don't have access, don't have reach. You know, do they want do they, do they want to be the spokesperson for the local uh, car dealership in a small town? Do they want to be uh, have a named camp, you know, where they can teach kids how to sail, kids how to play golf, kids how to play tennis? Now they can't do that now and use their name, image, and likeness while they're in the school. I mean, I, we we spoke to a a local young lady who finished her four years off in school and she was on the sailing team and, uh, you know, made a decision what, uh, what she would do after that, whether she was capable of, you know, going to the Olympics or doing other things like that. But one of the things she was doing were YouTube videos on how, the how to's and try to get uh, new students to learn how to do these things. And she couldn't do it while she was in school for the four years. So to me, that's just a, it's, it's a waste of the time that they're there, that they can't be good on, you know, good free market stewards and entrepreneurs like, like we would. I mean, I use the example of Bill Gates or Michael Dell and, you know, people will say, well, whether they were, we're not on a scholarship, all these things, but it's just a basic right that as you sit, 
sit there and think of uh, new inventions, new ideas, new things, whether you're talented at being on, uh, on a YouTube channel and people will watch it and monetize it, or if you just think of the next, uh, the next, it could be a piece of sports equipment while they're while they're actually uh, playing on the team, and and if it doesn't break, if it doesn't have a conflict, but if they come up with a, a piece of safety equipment or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, I, I I also say, look, if you if you've got a, a star athlete, small, medium, or large program, um, and they're popular, you know, they want to have a T-shirt. You know, we used Johnny Manziel before, and uh, there's other other you know other slogans or names that. You know, those players can't monetize the fact that, you know, everybody wants to buy that T-shirt for 20, 30 bucks. You know, who gets the money? Either, the, you know, the program or, or someone else. Right. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that, that athlete doesn't get to make that, uh, you know, doesn't get to experience that. And, and God forbid they don't they don't uh, play a sport that they'll go on and play on Sunday or a different league. You know, that's, that's their only time to use that name, image, and likeness. Darren, let me ask you, do you see this as a first step uh, in in a long process, or could this be, or, or could this law be the solution to the problem as is? Well, I, I don't see it as a first step in a long process. I do think, with regard to the state of Florida, it is a solution. Absolutely. What I would like to see is either this spur a national movement. Uh, with Florida being the first, I realize that California has already passed a bill and it's been signed by the governor. However, the effective date is 2023, whereas in Florida, we're looking to get this effective July 2020. So my hope is that it either spurs some sort of national movement and or causes the NCAA to change its longstanding position of not allowing athletes to exploit their publicity rights. And look, the the NCAA has put together a committee on this particular issue, and people point to that. The problem is that actions speak louder than words, and the fact that the NCAA has looked at it for some time is not dispositive that they will take any action. In fact, I think the opposite is true based on the history of the NCAA. That said, if Florida can be the reason why the NCAA changes its its position, fantastic. Um, but I do think that, or I do consider this piece of legislation a solution. Absolutely. Representative LaMarca, this is the final question for you. If passed, uh, like Darren said, and you said earlier, it's supposed to take effect July the 1st of 2020. What about you? Do you expect this move to trigger a sequence, uh, to, to trigger a sequence that might eventually see this issue move to the Supreme Court one day? Because we know the NCAA is not going to go down uh, without a fight here. Well, you know what, legal, I'm not a lawyer, and I, I leave that smart uh, legal minds like Darren, but, but my opinion of it is is absolutely, unless they want to uh, modernize some of the things they're doing, and, and I don't want to say acquiesce, but, but understand that, you know, this would be a great opportunity for them to say, okay, let's help the athletes in, in this, you know, somewhat small way, depending on who the athlete or the issue is, but, um, or the opportunity, but it's their opportunity to either, you know, kind of move with the times or be in a situation where it's all going to be about the courts. And I think Florida would be the first one in that situation, clearly. And Darren, what do you think? You think we might see this go all the way to uh, Washington at some point? I think it's it's one of the sexier topics to discuss at this point, but I do think it's premature. I mean, you have California that's passed its legislation. Florida will be the next. New York, South Carolina, Minnesota, and other states will follow suit. The only reason why I think it, it ultimately gets to the Supreme Court is if you have split opinions. And let's say 
the NCA sues on whatever grounds it decides, and you have one court of appeals rule one way and another rule a different way. But I think if that's the case, it's probably years down the line. And again, hopefully, it's something that is is resolved on a federal level or by way of the NCAA changing its rules and regulations well before then. Well, this is going to move pretty quickly. We know that if it does get passed, like we said, it, it is scheduled to take effect July 1st, 2020. A lot of hurdles still to clear, though, but this is going to be a very interesting thing to follow uh, in the Florida legislature. Representative Chip Lamarca from Broward County and Darren Heitner, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us here on the podcast. Uh, you can follow Representative Chip Lamarca uh, at Chip Lamarca on Twitter, and you can follow Darren Heitner at Darren Heitner on Twitter as well. That's H-E-I-T-N-E-R. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Uh, and, uh, well, best of luck with, uh, w- with the legislation. We'll be following it as it goes. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again to uh, Representative Lamarca and, uh, and Darren Heitner for their insight. And now we bring in the, our, our much-fabled black and gold banneret legal analyst, uh, you, uh, he's certainly much more than that, uh, but I just wanted to get that in there just so it sounded like we knew what we were doing. Uh, Chaz Short joins us. You can find him on Twitter at CFB Asterisk on Twitter, CFB Asterisk on Twitter, UCF alum, and a good buddy of mine going back to our Burnett Honors College days. Chaz, what's up, man? That's, that's right. It's been a long time, dude. Um, and now we're, now we're like, you know, moving and shaking with, you know, people of power. It's kind of bizarre, but... Um, so, uh, first of all, huge thanks to you because you were able to help me, um, get the, get this interview with Darren and representative Lamarca, um, set up and, you know, listening, thinking back on, on the interview that we just had that I, it, to clarify one of the things I think it gets sort of muddled in all of the PR around this issue is this bill is designed to ensure that someone like, you know, specifically they mentioned Donald Delahaye, can actually profit off of their name and likeness for activities outside of anything that they appear as part of their, anything that they appear in as part of their regular appearances for their specific team. So for example, Donald Delahaye was making, you know, videos on YouTube about just himself. Um, he wasn't doing it as an as a part of UCF in particular. Okay, he wasn't doing a UCF video starring Donald Delahaye. It was a Donald Delahaye video starring Donald Delahaye, um, and he could then, based on my reading of this, monetize those videos. Uh, and the NCAA, neither the NCAA nor UCF, could prevent him from doing that. On the other hand, if you make a team appearance and you appear in a say an episode of Netflix you wouldn't be getting cut a check for that, essentially. Um, is that how you read it from, from, your, from your perspective? Because you're much more experienced in reading these sort of documents than I am. That's how I would read it. And the way they've set up the bill is it's sort of primarily a series of prohibitions. So, for example, an institution can't uphold a rule um, preventing an athlete from earning compensation based on name, image, and likeness. An institution can't look at earning compensation from that sort of thing as affecting scholarship eligibility requirements. Uh, Athletic associations, and of course the NCAA is specifically identified, 
can't prevent an athlete from earning compensation or prevent an athlete from competing as a result of earning compensation through name, image, likeness. So it's a series of prohibitions, uh, mostly of that nature. Uh, and I, I think that would leave open uh, the door to monetizing YouTube videos based on non-team activities. It, it gets interesting because there are provisions dealing with a team contract. Um, you know, from my read of the bill, my takeaway is the intent there is that the school contract can, of course, say, well, you know, you, you can't monetize in connection with your team activities, which is interesting in the uh, Donald Delahaye example you cite because, you know, a part of the grief there was his filming within the practice facility. Right. Uh, so, so that's sort of an interesting connection. You still have not, you know, or the bill still does not, um, you know, leaves open room for institutions to make calls like that. Right. So, for example, like in, you know, you could you could see like in this future universe where UCF, for example, could say, okay, look, you want to, you know, make YouTube videos about kicking. That's cool but you can't do it in our facility if you're going to monetize it. Is that kind of what you see? That's my takeaway. Yeah. And, and that seems very sound to me. Right. Um, seems fair, you know, certainly. It's, in institutions are, for all the obvious reasons, uh, wanting to guard their likeness and their image. So, uh, you know, look, the way I read it, it seems to try and strike a balance there. Uh, which is probably necessary. Right. What do you see as the rub with this bill? Because there's always unintended consequences with things like this. Where, where do you think there might be a point of contention at some point down the road? Well, I start from I start from a position that says these players absolutely deserve whatever mechanisms of compensation are available. Um, you know, I, I think of them and look, it came out during, during the Northwestern fight about unionizing, mm -hmm. but these guys are working 50 to 60 hours per week during training camp, 40 to 50 weeks, uh, hours per week during the season. Uh, you know, this is serious work. So I'm always going to be in favor of any mechanism to get these guys paid. Uh, and, and that being said, this is sort of, to me, dipping the toe in the water. Um, because, for example, uh, Jeff, who, who does the quarterback who have a great game usually thank in the press conference? He's, he's going to thank, obviously, his teammates and all that, so, uh, and his coaches and whatnot. I mean, that's what's going to happen. Right. And so this is, a, this is a bill which is good, uh, is a good start, and certainly serves to help your high-profile guys. So your Dylan Gabriels of the world. Um, uh, imagine how much a guy like Shaquem Griffin would have benefited from this. Right. Um, given his high profile. Or Mackenzie Milton. Uh, but it's, you know, very individual-specific. Um, 
cer- certain people are certainly going to have a lot more ability to earn as a result of this. And you know, what what about the what about the O lineman who's maybe I mean, frankly, a lot less visible than someone like the star quarterback. Um, you know, you need all of the players on the team to make this thing work. You know, we, we see this through the lens of, I think, football and men's basketball the most. But what about athletes in, in that aren't in those sports? What about somebody like a volleyball player or a track and field uh, runner, for example? I, I, I personally see this as that it, what this really does is help them out the most. And I think Representative Lamarca um, it, it touched upon that. And I agree with him and actually and Darren on this assessment that, you know, this is they have no. More, way more often than not, they have no professional uh, prospects out uh, once they get done. But they're still subject to the same penalties if they do, at least as of the moment. And this bill seeks to alleviate that. I mean, do you think that we could see a sort of boon for uh, our Olympic sports athletes, as we call them? Maybe. Uh, but, you know, you have to wonder, the revenue sports like football and, to a lesser extent, basketball, of course, there's a, a greater opportunity because of the greater exposure of those sports for people to uh, monetize and, and earn on a, the basis of their name and likeness. I, I, I want to say this, though. I'm not sure I totally agree with the premise, you know, about – 1.5% of people go on to play in the NFL, much less have a lasting career there. True. Uh, so I, I'm not so convinced that it's such a, a better place to be uh, as a football athlete uh, in terms of your future earning potential. Because look, really so few people will have that professional sports career. Right, right. Now, the timing of this bill is really interesting. Obviously, they framed it as, you know, we want Florida to be the first, you know, ahead of California. The California bill that was just signed into law by Governor Newsom uh, was uh, slated to take effect in 2023. They're pushing this uh, this Florida bill so that it would take effect on July 1st of 2020. That's, that's, that's less than a year away. Um, and... That's going to put the legal process into fast forward. Why do you think they moved it so up so quickly? Because I thought that initially with the California thing, um, they were trying to give the NCAA ample time to try and update its legislation. Whereas, um, you know, the, the the state of Florida seems to be just throwing this thing into hyperdrive. Well, the the state of Florida is playing press. Yeah, I mean it's. Do, do, do you see like are there are there any potential pitfalls with that? Do you think? You know, look, it's going to be a fight whenever. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea of having fights early uh, because if something's good and if something and if we should fight for something, like I think we should all fight for athletes in the sport we enjoy so much getting properly compensated. You know, let's have the fight now. Why should it wait? Yeah. This is the state of Florida. I mean, I know the NCAA makes an absolutely huge amount of money. Um uh, you know, but you're you're the you're you're a, you know, 
you're a nonprofit organization. You know, this is the state of Florida. And so I think good for the state and good for folks like Representative LaMarca um, who want to put the pressure on because, well, they should. Why should the state of Florida defer to the NCAA? Yeah. And the conferences, too, for that matter, you know, because the conferences specifically are uh, they're the ones that dole out the money to the institutions through the television contracts in particular. So, um, I mean, that's a good point, I guess. Uh, the last point I wanted to leave you with here is where do you see this going? Because California's passed the law. Florida wants to. Uh, we don't know whether or not there's any whip counts or anything on, anything on this. And obviously there's a Senate version that has to go through that's also um, that's also sponsored by a member of the Democratic Party. Representative LaMarca is a Republican. There's going to be some, assuming they both pass, uh, there's going to have to be some negotiation before it gets to the governor's desk. Um but, uh, you know, just to interrupt you there yeah. briefly, Jeff, uh, I think it is actually also a House bill. I believe that the Lamarca bill is House Bill 287. And for the, uh, you know, the real heads who want to follow this closely, uh, gotcha. the Democratic bill is House Bill um, 251. 251. Yeah, that's correct. I'm sorry about that. Thank you for thank you for keeping me on my toes about that. So. Either way, there's the political reality is that you're going to see the, you know, Republican bill move and the Democratic version of the bill not move. Right. Because it's a um, because the Florida legislature is overwhelmingly Republican. But, um, you know, nonetheless, I think that there's potential for real. uh, Obviously, there's bipartisan demand for this uh, to address this issue. I think that's probably the best thing going for it, at least at this moment. But let's fast forward for a little bit what do you think is going to happen with this i mean are are we going to see the do you think we're going to see the ncaa finally relent once states like texas and new york get on board with it which that you know they they're throwing around bills like that now that california's passed it so the floodgates are opening there or do you think they're going to fight this tooth and nail possibly all the way to the supreme court of the united states if if need be Uh, hard to handicap it I would say certainly that this is the most modest of modest, I'll use the word reform. So so if you were to ask me, I think the NCAA should accommodate um, this sort of thing. I don't doubt you will hear a PR campaign, and certainly there will be a lobbying campaign with a lot of hand-wringing about amateurism, uh, but look, from my point of view, we're really beyond that point. Yeah. I mean, the law doesn't recognize college athletes as employees of the school. Um, you were to ask me from kind of a moral perspective, I gave you some of those numbers about how many hours per week they're working. Think of the physical risk uh, their bodies go through. Uh, they certainly should be. They're sacrificing a lot, and they should be compensated as a result. And the, sort of the beauty of this approach in terms of, well, what will the NCAA do is I've said it about four or five times because I truly believe it. This is a bare minimum. This is a stepping the toe into the water. This is the kind of very modest, targeted proposal um, that the NCAA should be willing to alter its business model to accommodate. Yeah, and and the realities are, and we've talked about it before on Twitter, and is that it's a new economy now, and 
the NCAA's legislation has not kept up with the realities of a of a, of a 21st century economy. Many of these rules were written, you know, some of the, you know, not about as far away from the 19th century as we are uh, from the 20th century here today. So, um, do they do they adapt or die? I mean, that's that's the real question we're going to settle here, right? Well, I, of course, what I wonder is, assume a scenario where the NCAA tries to take it to the brink and say, if you we're not changing our rules, um, tough luck, you're not competing for championships if you're from uh, Florida or California or wherever else. Well, it seems to me that that then becomes a fertile environment for some competitor to hmm. spring up. Interesting. So this is going to be – go ahead. I'm sorry. And I mean, we're we're imagining things way down the line, but there are serious pressures on the NCAA to change its business model or um, to, or, or die. Right. Plus, where's the fun in not speculating, right? <laughs> well, I think that's what we're here to do. Right. <laughs> uh, listen, Jazz- listen, Jeff, I, I did want to touch on one thing. Uh, you you mentioned the bipartisan aspect. Yeah. And I completely agree with that because sort of the beauty of this and another one of the upsides of it being a relatively modest proposal is it should resonate with anyone on the political spectrum so if you were on the political right you should be able to say of course athletes should get access to the market at least in this minimal kind of way Mm And if you're someone on the left who thinks of athletes as workers, then of course they need these opportunities. Right. To, in order to level the economic playing field as much as possible. You're absolutely right. So I know this is going to be really interesting here. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, these, these folks just create, especially in the revenue sports, um, just create so much money for everyone other than themselves. I, you know, I think we should always support a mechanism that's going to result some fairer share. I hear you. Well, we're going to be following this as it goes along. I know you're going to be following it very closely um, because you're pretty plugged in on this issue. And uh, just a reminder for the fans where they can follow you uh, on all this on all this kind of news, and not to mention some really good insight on UCF as well. At CFB asterisk on Twitter. And thank you for letting me pontificate. (laughs) Thanks for coming on, Chaz. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Stick around. We'll be right back here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, Brian Murphy with you here. UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret, and of course, BlackandGoldBanneret.com. Before we talk about the weekend in volleyball and soccer and a busy weekend it was, um, just real quick, no UCF football this weekend, obviously, because of the bye week, but um, some pretty good matchups in uh, in the American. In, in Philadelphia, um, Memphis is playing Temple. Uh, uh, let's see, South Florida is playing BYU at home. Gird your loins for that one. Um, 3.30 kick, uh, Houston is at home for Cincinnati. That should be very, uh, well, not as interesting as we were hoping it would be. Uh, at the start of the year. Tulane faces UConn at 345, and then 730 Navy is at Tulsa. Um, guys, what do you think? What is the game most most worth watching 
um, from that from that slate. I'm thinking Memphis Temple, right? Yeah, and Jeff, I'm so glad you asked. I mean, I've been planning for this question for hours, so thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> literally two seconds. Literally, I'm like, I, before, when we were away in the break, I was like, Murph, I'm going to ask you what American games you're watching. And she's like, what? I'm going to watch baseball. <laughs> no, Memphis is Memphis and Temple, really, it's a game where, I mean, it's way early still, obviously, but... Uh, the winner kind of has maybe a heads up on hosting the conference championship. Like these are both undefeated. Like they're both one and zero teams in conference. Temple's four and one. Memphis five and zero. So that's interesting. Also, I do want to see how Cincinnati comes back. Uh, you know, facing Houston again, it's clearly a, a shorthanded Houston team, but a Houston team that's coming off a bye against Cincinnati, who's coming off this big emotional win. Does Cincinnati refocus quickly enough? To, to, to really beat a team that's had two weeks to prepare. Both those games on ESPN2, by the way. You agree with that, Eric? Yeah, I mean, does Cincinnati have a letdown against Houston? If you're a UCF fan, you're hoping for that because you yeah. need Cincinnati to lose twice in conference, yeah. and uh, your best shot usually is on the road here at Houston. Uh, you feel a lot better if the, you know Houston didn't like put the white flag on the season, but you know redshirting their best player. But uh, but as a result, I will redshirt them and not watch them. But I, I think that's an upset potential, though. I do agree with Murph that Cincinnati will see how they come bounce back from that win against UCF. And I think Temple Memphis. I'll give let's give Murph credit. He put Memphis as the top team in the ballot at the beginning of the year in the West. And right now, if you look at the American Memphis and SMU, those are your hopes if you're the American as far as getting that New Year's Six Bowl situation there. So much talk about Boise, but I still think Memphis has a shot to jump them if they can go undefeated and this is a big step and we're going to learn a lot about Temple. Are they a pretender or a contender in the East? Both those games are on ESPN2 by the way. Memphis Temple at noon and Cincinnati Houston at 3.30 in case you want to keep up on what's going on around the American. Alright, uh, let's dive into uh, what what is going on with uh, other sports. Big weekend for uh, well actually all the other sports um, we'll start with men's soccer. They had a huge game Sunday night against SMU, and a wild game. These game, these two teams have treated us to some real barn burners over the last three seasons, um, and uh, no doubt, uh, no no different on Sunday as uh, UCF and SMU fight to a three three draw through two overtimes. It was scoreless at halftime, and uh, UCF jumped out two nothing. SMU scored. UCF scored again. Cal Jennings actually had a goal to go up 3-1. But then SMU came back. I think they got a PK in there too, Eric, didn't they? And uh, S- and UCF and SMU ended up fighting to a draw. SMU was 9-0. and They were undefeated and untied. And UCF drops their first, uh, ends, their un- ends their unbeaten, untied streak. Um, with uh, uh, with that three three draw, UCF is seven one and two on the season. Um, it, it, it Gabriel Costa actually got the uh, penalty kick goal for SMU that tied it at three three. Um, shots in this game, you ready for this? Thirty two for UCF, twenty five for SMU. Yep, unbelievable game. And if you if, if you watch that second half, it was just it was a a yep. masterpiece uh, of the beautiful game, wasn't it? 
It was wild. We warned you about it if you heard last week. I told you it was going to be a wild one. SMU, the number two offense in college soccer when it comes to goals scored. They're among the top five also in shots. They're uh, And UCF's not too far behind either. So, uh, in fact, I think UCF's also in the top ten offensively. So, it's you know, it was funny. The first half was probably more of the surprise being a scoreless first half, even though both teams are good defensively. It felt like a, you know, kind of a – kind of a feeling out process and then once the the, go, the first goal got in you felt like the uh, floodgates open wild one obviously from a UCF on part of you is disappointed you couldn't hold on to that 3-1 lead um even in I think there was an opportunity there where they're up three to two where they had several to the box and Jennings yeah and Jennings just I, mean, I remember they showed Scott Calabrese's reaction he couldn't believe how close it was that could have put him away some quest, some touchy calls. I thought that the refs can. I went with the home team there, but at the same time, uh, I think it's a good result. I still maintain a good draw on the road, and the pollsters agree because they moved up two spots in the United Soccer Coaches poll to number nine in the country from eleven to nine, and they moved up six spots to the top drawer soccer poll. They're number three in that poll, so they really impressed people. The American, for the first time ever, has two teams in the top ten in the polls with SMU and UCF. Uh, a hell of a match, and as I tweeted out afterwards, uh, I have a feeling they're going to play again. They're probably going oh, to play I hope again so. in the conference championship. <laughs> I hope so. I would love to see these for the two. Championship. The, only question, the only question is, right, the only question is, where is it going to take place? That's yeah. really the only question. I can't wait to see these two teams play again. That was a real, that, that game was, if you're a fan of just soccer, okay, that game was a joy to watch. Um, especially in the second half. Uh, UCF has uh, Tulsa coming up at home on Saturday at 7. Saturday night. Yep, night game. And uh, and I'm, I'm trying to pull up the uh, standings. I forgot to pull them up before I, before I did this. But I'm, I'll give you, while you look that up, I'll give you this little, a couple of factoids about that Tulsa match. Tulsa, remember, won the first three American Conference Tournament championships in the America 2014 to 16. Right. This has been a traditional good program, four and five. They've won 10 out of 16 meetings all time with UCF going back to 2005 when they were in USA. 10-3-3, Tulsa leads the all-time series. So not a cakewalk by any stretch. They're very good. They're kind of in a rebuild. But don't take – you know, I'll be curious how UCF, you know, kind of comes out after that emotional match with SMU. Plus, Cal Jennings, you mentioned he scored his 10th goal in that SMU match. He's got 39 goals now in his career. That's tied for fourth all-time in UCF soccer history. He's tied with Ronnie Francis, who played at UCF from 80 to 83. The next goal puts Cal Jennings into that 40-goal mark. There's been four players in the history of the program that have had 40 or more goals. Ari Nurmi, who played from 96 to 99, had 47 goals. Randy DeShield had 56 from 76 to 79. And then, I don't know how this happened, but Heike Ritkevin had 88 goals oh. from 96 to 99. Like the Wayne Gretzky of UCF soccer. Yeah. Uh, That's the uh, unreachable star, man. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but Cal Jennings has a chance for the milestone with his next goal to reach that 40-goal plateau. I mean, think about it. Those guys I mentioned played in the late 90s, 70s, and 80s. We haven't seen anybody really in the last 20 years be this prolific of a goal scorer like we have with Cal yeah. Jennings. Tulsa, by the way, 0-1 in the league, 4-5 overall. Um, UCF and SMU are tied for second. Memphis is first in the American at 2-0 in the league, 8-2 overall. Controversial, by the way. Is that so? Controversial. What, what, what happened? Because Tulsa, 
Tulsa was playing USF. You're going to like this. They played last week in Tulsa. They were trailing 2-1 to one in around the 68th minute when Mother Nature and Lightning came. And oh, that rule came into play then, finish didn't it? it. Uh-huh. Got to get 70 minutes in to be official. It wasn't, so it's been scrapped out. They're going to have to replay it, uh, play the match over again, start over in a future date. Are they going to, or, are they, or, or, or could they just end up They canceling? said they will try to. Now, we haven't heard anything, but they said they were going to try to because it is a conference game, and it could be meaningful, So, hmm. but I haven't heard anything more. That's what they said uh, last week. Interesting. So UCF and Tulsa face each other on Saturday at 7. Uh, women's soccer. Uh, oh, by the way, and you mentioned the rankings for, for men's soccer. Women's soccer is uh, moving on up. They are finally in the United Soccer Coaches poll, uh, coming in at number 23 on the season. Um, this past weekend, uh, UCF Women's Soccer, uh, by the way, they're 8-2-2 two two overall. Uh, this past weekend, they defeated number 22, SMU 2-1, to one, and then followed that up uh, that was in Dallas and then went to Houston and beat them 3 to nothing. So a clean sweep on the weekend for UCF women's soccer before they come home and they now only have five games left in the season uh temple yukon at home this coming weekend followed by at ecu at cincinnati on the road and then home on halloween night for south florida so they're coming down the stretch at a furious pace and eric lopez the rpi is out for women's uh for women's soccer and uh and how about ucf at this point uh actually i gotta find them i thought i had them Pulled up. Well, they moved, up, they moved up from 91 to 67. Yeah, and that 67. was because of that SMU win. SMU right. was a top 50 team. That was a huge, huge win. They moved from 91 to 67. And that's the really RPI. what you have to pay attention to with the, with, the, with the way that the tournament shakes out and all that. You know, the RPI is what you want to look at. I know everyone loves to talk about the coaches poll, but pay attention to the RPI. It is fascinating though because you got UCF's ranked twenty third in the coach in the polls and yet sixty seven in the RPI. Memphis is ranked eighth in the country. There was a UCF lost them there one nothing. Their RPI is twenty seven. So it's very interesting how the differences of opinion there. UCF schedule strength moved up to one sixty nine. That SMU match is big. They got to keep working, and I think still got to keep working out because again the the, the the RPI is not going to get a much boost for a while until they play South Florida. But look, they're playing very well. Um, they're, they're, they're really good. And as I said last week, I think if you look at them as an eye test, I actually agree with the polls. I think they're a top 30, top 35 team. But you're right, Jeff, for them to get put themselves in position, if they don't win the conference, to put themselves in position as an at-large, you like to see that RPI get to maybe the 40s uh, to get into the tournament. Uh, and for that to happen, they got to keep winning, which, hey, right. that's the name of the game. Just keep winning. And they are tied for second in the overall conference standings at 3-1 and one with South Florida. Memphis right now at 4-0. and oh. That Memphis game just continues to sting, though. I mean, that's just an absolute killer how that, how that, how that game turned out. But nonetheless, um, well, think about this. Two, think about this. By the way, think about this. There are two losses, one nil to Memphis with that whole thing with did the goal go, did the ball go into the net or not. Mm-hmm. Memphis is ranked eighth in the country. Their other loss was... 12th in the country. Uh, unbelievable. To UCF Wisconsin? have a win at Florida. Right? Yeah, Wisconsin's 12th. Wisconsin's yeah. 12th in the country. Florida, who the UCF beat, is ranked 19th. They beat Texas A&M this week. Florida's in 11th in the RPI. Wisconsin's number 9 in the RPI. So uh, I think we're UCF with that SMU win, helping that resume, 
that Halloween, they got to keep winning. I think they got to win the rest of the matches going into that Halloween showdown with South Florida. Well, they're facing Temple and UConn this week at home. Temple's 1-3 and three in the league. UConn's 0-4. Got to take care of business on uh, on the home pitch here in, uh, in what is their uh, second and third to last uh, home games of the year. Uh, they have, uh, and obviously, like you said, Halloween night, senior night. Um, against South Florida, that's the that's their regular season finale. Who knows what that could decide uh, when the season um, gets to it? All right, volleyball on the road facing uh, their toughest test uh, on the season uh, at Cincinnati, um, and it was uh, it was a struggle out there for UCF this time around. Cincinnati was certainly well prepared for this match. Um, and uh, and it was and and they got the sweep three nothing over UCF. This was played at noon, the day of the football game. So I mean, just a nightmare Friday for UCF at Cincinnati in in two different sports. But you know, we talked to Coach Dagenet before the road trip, and he said that this road trip is probably the worst in the conference because of the distances you have to travel. Well, the long distance from there to ECU. And UCF took care of uh, business at ECU, winning three nothing. So a split on the weekend for UCF. Um, coming up this weekend, they have um, they have the uh, road match at South Florida at the Corral, and then home for Memphis on October um, the thirteenth. But this is the one thing that I think we have to point out here, Eric Lopez, is um, the volleyball RPI is finally out for the first time, and UCF checks in at. 28th with a 10 and 6 record. Um, that is, yeah, I mean, aided. I mean, yep. Oh, I was gonna say that it that is the best, the best in the in the American. They're three spots ahead of Cincinnati, who's 12 and 4, and that's a credit to the schedule that UCF has played to this point, right? The 12 strong, uh, toughest schedule in the country. Uh, that's what UCF has 11th overall non conference. And you look at the resume. Wins over Illinois, whose RPI is 22. Win over Iowa State, whose RPI is 25 on a neutral court. A win against Ole Miss, who has an RPI of 42. So they've got quality wins. Think about these losses, too. That Rice loss, they lost. They're, Rice is nine in the RPI. Hell right. <laughs> Mark, that uh, loss actually helped UCF in, in a way. Not as much as a win yes, would have, but the loss helps. Think about Think about this. Marquette, oh, you still got to be just, just, just driving yourself oh. nuts. They were one point one swing away from knocking off Marquette on the neutral court. Marquette's RPI is 12 uh, overall. Uh, losses to Florida Gulf Coast, 44, Miami, 49, Cincinnati, 31. So, um, you know, they've got a great schedule, uh, and they've put themselves in position to be a team that can make the tournament. However, I'm going to caution you here, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Can't trip up. You can't trip up this weekend because you're going to South Florida, whose RPI is 174, and then the home match against Memphis. Memphis, even though has a good win-loss record, you know what their RPI is? It's not very good. I know that. I, I can't even find him. 223. Ugh. 223. I mean, and they're 0 so and 4 in the league too. Memphis is so. Yeah. So you have to take. You cannot sleepwalk here because you lose a match like that. And that RPI will not uh, will not be very favorable. It'll, it'll drop you some spots. So, uh, 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 you know, we'll see how they play. I want to ask you a real question here because you obviously follow this. And they mentioned this on the Digital Network broadcast uh, during the Cincinnati match. And, you know, you mentioned the Cincinnati match. Really misleading. UCF had multiple set points in the second set. 
didn't close the door. And you, I kind of felt they were deflated a little bit in that third set, Jeffrey. I don't know if you felt the same way um, from that point on. It should have been a one-one set instead of. But talked about UCF has with the serve. Uh, they're near the bottom in the league in served in serving. And I even looked it up. They almost have as many errors. I think they have about 106-something errors this year and 30 all of last year or something like that. Is that a concern? Is that part of perhaps one of the reasons why they haven't been able to close out sets like maybe you would like because they've had not been that consistent with the serve this year? Well, the serve, you know, to their, at least from what I've been able to say, their serve game has not, and and <laughs> Coach Dagenet and Coach Mao are probably going to correct me on this when I see them next time. But the serve game has not come back to bite them late in sets, I don't believe. What has occasionally is serve-receive, and I think that's that's one that um, that Todd has harped on quite a bit with this team. Is like you, yeah. we have to be able to get our offense going and stay in system off of you know, off of receiving the serve. And so far, they've been pretty good at doing that. Um, that's not to say that they haven't left some points on the board, though, throughout the course of the um, throughout the course of the season, and that's something that I know that they definitely do want to work on, and certainly they spent some time working on it this week as we head into this um, as we head into this weekend. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting because UCF does not their service game is not as aggressive as uh, as other schools. That you see, you know, for example, you don't see anyone on UCF doing the jump serve, which is, you know, know, high power serve to try and get things going because UCF service game is all about location, location, location. Um, And how can we how can we get teams out of system right off the bat? And so to see UCF have some struggles in that arena seems very uncharacteristic, but there's still plenty of time to alleviate that and correct it as we continue down the road in the conference um, season. And this is yeah, a weekend, like you said, they that they need to the do. Yeah. yeah, this is something that, yeah, you know, I mean, this weekend is a good chance for them the to actually fix. So, um, I agree. And, and again, I only bring it up because that can make the difference, right? In a, in a close set, you lose a couple points early because you don't, you know, win some easy points sometimes too. If you get a strong serve, and uh, but you know, that's that's you always nitpick stuff. Well, that's lose tight set. That's that, that's the hard part about it is like when you when you commit a service error, is you're just leaving the points on the board. You're not even making the other team touch the ball. You know, that's that's the part that hurts I think the yep. most. And um, and yeah, it's something that they're going to have to fix. Um, going forward. I got the stat by the way, 136 uh, service service errors. You can explain this. You're more the volleyball service se the service error. Service errors, uh, yeah. Compared to 100, uh, compared to 110 service assists. I think is that what it is? SA right. there, service assists. And then uh, this year they're at 112 or, or service aces errors. rather. Um, ser- service yeah, aces. Is, that's what it is. But um, yeah, it's something that they're going to have to work on. Um, as again, and this is this weekend coming up is actually the per- perfect weekend to do that against competition that's still in conference, but you know it's you know Memphis is struggling and USF struggling. So how do you work on those things moving forward? I think that's what they have to fix. Um, uh, finishing off a little bit of uh, pro news and Murph, I want to bring you in for this. Murph, you still there? Yes, <laughs> it's, it's watching the baseball. Murph game. was just happy, still watching baseball there. Yeah. Hey, how about Taco Fall? How about Taco Fall in his preseason debut with the Boston Celtics uh, the other night against the Charlotte Hornets? Um, first of all, got a rousing ovation 
um, uh, in the garden. Um, yeah. He was, uh, he came in in the fourth quarter, um, you know, but you could tell he's the big fan favorite here, right? Um, no question about it. And he got, uh, and he got a block and he got a dunk and two for three from the field, one for two at the line, you know, not bad, right? The summer league love has not died down uh, at all. Uh, he is he is going to be a uh, a a, a cult fan favorite uh, for however long he's there, um, and uh, he will be in Orlando on Friday night because the Celtics are playing the Magic at Amway, and I will be there. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Oh, yeah. Are you going to be there too, Lopez? Oh, you know it, baby. Me and the Murph back at the Amway Center. Good times. We're going to have full coverage of Taco's return. Look, uh, by the way, you mentioned the, the, the taco popularity, and I post uh, I have an article coming out, if it's not out already by the time you're listening to this, about Taco Fall. You know when he checked in in that Celtics game, the ratings in Boston spiked up by 53%. Think about that. <laughs> insane of a number. Just, that is hey, insane. Taco Fall's coming in, everyone. Pop on the, the Celtics game, right? They really did, but people are, yeah. and I write about it's funny though, and Murph, I, I'll ask you about it because I wrote about it. I made my my article is, I think Taco Fall right now is the most popular UCF athlete in sports, and he's you know they've been mentioning commercials. People love this guy, and Murph, you I, I think there's just this we you know and I wrote about it. There's a, we've always been intrigued by big tall guys uh, in, in sports and even in entertainment. Like if these guys are tall, it's like bigger than life and. I feel like with Taco, this whole thing started back in the NCAA tournament there. Not only with playing VCU, beating VCU, and he had that you have that image of him being interviewed in the postgame by Tracy Wolfson, but the whole Taco versus Zion thing, ever since then, I think Taco it's just been Taco Fever, Murph. Absolutely. And I, I forgot where I read this. There was a really good article written about sure that as much as we love Taco because he's such a unique character and He's tall and he's playing basketball at that height, and he looks good doing it. Um, that we we don't lose sight of him. He's not just he's not a sideshow. He is not he is not a guy that we should just uh, cheer for because he is so tall. Like he can really play, and I think Brad Stevens tried to pound this home too in some of his post game stuff about like we we shouldn't just look at Taco as being like this immensely tall skinny guy. Like he's legit. NBA quality player. Now, do I think do I think he's going to start the season at with the Celtics? I do not. Still, I think he should start in the G League. Uh, however, I, I think he's shown in the summer league and early on in the preseason that he he is an NBA player and not just um, a gimmick. And I, I think that's something that people should not lose sight of. Yeah. I, I, well, I agree I, with Murph. By the way, I agree. I agree. I mean, I've talked to and I've read. People at Boston have been – I mean, they actually think he's got a shot to make the 15-man roster. It is not – that's not a foregone conclusion. Now, the que- yeah. there's an interesting debate is do you send him to the G League to get some reps in and play and then – but or do you keep him on your roster that way and be in practice and, and things like that? That's going to be one of the things I think we're going to be talking to a lot of Boston media Friday night at the Amway Center and try to get a temperature on that, and we'll, we'll kind of have a re- response to that next week. But – he he's got a shot, and I was not. I was I was one that didn't think he would have a shot, but he is definitely impressed. And the good thing about it, and I think we mentioned this uh, during summer league, the Celtics are lacking bigs. 
that's not a bad team to be in if you're a big guy, a tall guy at center. They don't have a ton of centers. Al Hartford was playing the majority of the time at center last year. He's now with the Sixers, so he could. I, I think he's got a shot. We're going to learn more on Friday night in person when we talk to people there, and obviously I would assume he'll get some uh, some time there at the Amway Center. I just love the fact that, you know, here's Taco Fall now firmly establishing himself as maybe the most beloved player, certainly on the Celtics, but maybe the most beloved player quite possibly in the league uh, in terms of just how he's handled himself um, and how the fans, uh, they gravitate towards him. Um, Now, I am not a Celtics fan. I despise the Celtics, and and I I can't believe I'm going to have to root for them now because of Taco Fall, but... Um, if there is a fan base that understands that, it's the Boston Celtics fan base and how passionate they are about about the Celtics and how much he can mean for them. So, um, again, this is it, this is good. I, I it, it, everything about this is fun to watch, and I hope he does get on that 15 man roster and we see him in the regular season. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, it's bye week. Uh, you know, it's kind of yeah, you know, it's a little slow around here. I'm not gonna lie, but um, we'll start with you, Brian. What do you have? coming up this week i love the, the the checklist this week was great you did you've been doing a bunch of breakdowns for ucf football and trying to tell everybody listen everyone calm down but here's what's really wrong um and so what else do you have coming up well thank you jeff for the compliments and i'm glad you've enjoyed those pieces if you want more of those pieces uh you'll have to wait because <laughs> i got nothing <laughs> <laughs> well, at I'm least you're honest. honest. What, a promo, what a promo! That's yeah. That was that was that was right up there with Macho Man Randy Savage. Man, it's yeah, right. That was hell in the that was hell in the cell main event quality there, Mer. <laughs> yeah, Eric, that's too low. Can you, you imagine stepping up to the mic with me? Below the belt. Can you imagine stepping up to the mic with Mean Gene Oakland and being like, Gene, I got nothing today. I, I, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. See, Jeff, Jeff, I know Jeff didn't get it, but Eric really insulted me right there. It was an really awful paper. Yeah, it was an awful pay per view. They basically got booed out of the arena. Uh, Seth Rollins probably is jealous of Taco Fall. Wishes he had the cheers that Taco Falls had uh, in Boston because he did not have any cheering uh, in his match against the Fiend Bray Wyatt, which is a good because Mr. Murphy will be at the Amway Center. He has announced that. That's a big deal. Brian Murphy at the NBA. Yeah, you know, I'm glad. That's why I'm here. I'm trying to remind you where you're going to be. Because you're going to be with me at the Amway Center. There is coffee. Actually, I'm not. Oh, I, let me take that back. It's good I don't, to know. I don't know if there is. It could go either way. If there's coffee on there. Yeah. Celtics <laughs> Magic. Me and Murph will be at the Amway Center. We'll have coverage of Taco Fall return to Orlando Friday night. Yes. Friday night, so Murph might have might write something about that. I, I might write. I, I can almost guarantee I'll write something about that. So that is actually coming. Uh, there might be some football content. It depends on what strikes me, either uh, tomorrow during availability or just on a whim, like on a Saturday when I'm not doing anything for once, possibly. <laughs> um, I do want to mention two things that are baseball related. I know shocker, but one of them is UCF uh, adjacent. Fall ball. Fall yes. ball. Baseball. Hey, do you like baseball? Do you like baseball that's five months before baseball season? Well, UCF is the place for you. Because November 1st and November 8th, UCF will be playing Stetson in a home-and-home. Home-and-home is a very popular word here at UCF. And here's a home-and-home 
against Stetson. It doesn't count. <laughs> it's in November, but I'm jacked for it. Uh, the first game will be November 1st uh, here at uh, in Orlando. The second game will be November 8th up in DeLand. I won't be there for that because I'll be in Tulsa covering a football game, but I'm very excited for this. Uh, and that's it was released this week. Uh, and so we are less than three weeks away from college first baseball. First, the Stetson Hatters. Let's clarify. Yeah, Stetson released it first. I'm very, I'm very jacked for that. Also, something that's not UCF related, but I will mention it now. So the Braves, in case no one is watching sports, uh, got obliterated tonight in a winner-take-all game five. Uh, Brian McCann Wednesday night. Brian McCann is on the Braves. He's been a 15-year catcher. Uh, he came back to the Braves this year after spending a couple years on, on different teams, but he basically is, uh, is a Braves. I would say he's a Braves legend of this of this decade. Uh, he announced after the game that he is retiring. I mentioned this for one reason, because he should have batted in the oh, ninth inning of the oh. game, uh, down 13-1 to with two outs in the ninth inning, but the Braves pinch hit for him. Oh. The manager, Brian Snicker, Pinch hit for Brian Cam on his, before his last at bat as a major leaguer, a Braves legend going out. He said he decided that he was going to retire a month and a half ago. Everybody knew he was going to retire, and he got pinch hit for. Oh my God! Never trust a guy named Snicker. Anyway, Brian um, even called it out for that too. He's um, yeah. Anyway, that was a Eric, Eric. Eric, what do you have going I, on? I, 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 uh, that well, the Braves lost because they, you know they they got they traded Danny Winkler. The curse of UCF owned Danny Winkler. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, there you go, a little baseball. By the way, shout out to Chad Matola, UCF Hall of Famer, assistant with the Rays hitting coach. Game, they're pushing the yeah, the mighty Astros to a game five Thursday night. We wish them the best. A heck of a year for the Rays. But I will, as I've mentioned before, and I'll mention it again. I will be with Brian Murphy Friday night at the Amway Center for the Magic and the Celtics. I have a, I will have an article out about Taco Fall being the most popular UCF athlete today. And I break down why I believe that's the case. That is an article there. There's already an article on blackandgoldbanneret.com about the TV numbers for Cincinnati. Good numbers. It's positive news. Or, you know, maybe not if you didn't want to want. Eh, whatever. It's good numbers. Break, I have the whole breakdown there on UCF Cincinnati, and me and Jeff have our three night stars of the week that should be out. Jeff picks one, usually has contr contributes to that, so once he finally finishes up, who does he decide is the third star, it gets published, so when Jeff decides it's done, it's done. So that'll be out on also on the uh, blackandgoldbanneret.com. And Murph, since you got nothing better to do on Saturday, I, care, I encourage you to watch my broadcast. I'll be calling the number nine ranked Knights against Tulsa Saturday night details at ucfnights.com go to your your favorite twitch account there all right go. sounds man. good man special thanks also i want to pass along to uh chip uh, representative chip lamarca from florida's uh 93rd district down in broward county for his insight on uh, hp 287 also darren heitner uh, by the way you can follow representative lamarca at chip lamarca on twitter follow darren heitner at darren heitner and that's h-e-i-t-n-e-r on Twitter, and thanks also to Chad Short, indispensable in uh, setting up that interview that we had earlier um, in the show. Follow Chaz at CFB asterisk CFB asterisk uh, here on uh, Twitter as well. So for Eric and Brian, 
I'm Jeff saying thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Enjoy the bye week and get some stuff done around the house this weekend, will you? Uh, for all of us at Black and Gold Banneret, uh, enjoy the weekend, and we will see you next week. <laughs>